Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, Revoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. I'm trying to free your mind, Neo, but I can only show you the door. You're the one that has to walk through it. Welcome to Origins, a podcast encompassing stories concerning just about anything and everything. There is information, theories, news, stories, conjecture and ideas from history, geography, science, technology, language, medicine, archaeology, just about anything really. If you're interested in anything and everything, come along and listen and enjoy my show. Welcome to Origins, episode 44. This week's podcast is entitled, The Stardust Mystery. We'll be looking at other stories that include, The Earliest Oil Paintings Have Been Discovered, and from the Daily Galaxy comes the story, Harvard researchers create a computer language that can penetrate the mind of a cell. From the dailymail.co.uk website from Andrew Malone comes the story about how China's taking over Africa and why the West should be very worried. How snakes got their fangs and from the Daily Galaxy also is ageing an accident of evolution? Stanford scientists say yes. From the Null Hypothesis website, The World Without Man. And the new scientist is reporting that T-Rex tissue may just be bacterial scum. From Reuters, the world's oldest joke has been traced back to 1900 BC. We're going to be having an article from Panati's Extraordinary Origins of Everyday Things and probably a few things from the Worldwide Weird as well.
Well, let's start on a light note this week. From Reuters.com, the world's oldest joke has been traced back to 1900 BC. The world's oldest recorded joke has been traced back to 1900 BC and suggests toilet humour was as popular with the ancients as it is today. It is a saying of the Sumerians, who lived in now what is called southern Iraq, and goes, Something which has never occurred since time memorial. A young woman did not fart in her husband's lap. It heads the world's oldest top ten joke list published by the University of Wolverhampton on Thursday. A 1600 BC gag about a pharaoh said to be King Snowfru comes second. How do you entertain a bored pharaoh? You sail a boatload of young women dressed only in fishing nets down the Nile and urge the pharaoh to go catch a fish. The oldest British joke dates back to the 10th century and reveals the bawdy face of the Anglo-Saxons. What hangs at a man's thigh and wants to poke the hole that it's often poked before? Answer, a key. Jokes have varied over the years, with some taking the question and answer format, while others are witty proverbs or riddles, said the report's writer, Dr Paul MacDonald, senior lecturer at the university. What they all share, however, is a willingness to deal with taboos and a degree of rebellion. Modern puns, Essex girls jokes and toilet humour can all be traced back to the very earliest jokes identified in this research. The study was commissioned by television channel Dave. The top ten oldest jokes can be viewed at www.davetv.co.uk and that article was written by John Joseph. The following article comes from the NewScientist.com website and has been written by Jeff Hecht. T-Rex tissue may just be bacterial scum. When paleontologists reported that they had recovered soft tissue from a 65 million year old Tyrannosaurus rex fossil, the excitement was palpable. Without going all Jurassic Park, the discovery seemed to open the door to studying biomolecules from dinosaurs and other long extinct creatures. Now, however, Tom Kay of the University of Washington says the soft material is more likely to be remnants of biofilms deposited by bacteria. Kay set out to find his own dinosaur tissue in bones from rocks like those that had apparently yielded the T-Rex tissue. We cracked open a lot of bones and spent hundreds of hours on an electron microscope examining them, said Kay. He concluded the soft material was not from dinosaurs, but from bacterial films which grew on cavities inside the bone long after the animal had died. More familiar biofilms are thin, sticky layers like dental plaque, but Kay says the biofilms he found produced branching hollow filaments when they coated the inside of the blood vessel cavities in the bone. Mary Schweitzer of North Carolina State University, who made the original soft tissue claim and who also reported evidence for dinosaur collagen, is not convinced. Schweitzer points to immunological studies that show her T. rex samples were close to chicken collagen, as expected 
because birds evolved from predatory dinosaurs. Kay, she says, did not offer any explanation for how biofilm proteins from dinosaur could cluster with chicken, while biofilm from mammoth and mastodon cluster with elephants. That indicates at least some of the long-dead animals' original protein survives. It is clear that some biomarker molecules can survive for tens or hundreds of millions of years in fossils, says David Martill of the University of Portsmouth in the UK. This is why we should not abandon hope of finding fossil biomolecules, he says. But some of the bacterial scum could be mixed in, making the whole fossil a composite, says Dave Unwin of the University of Leicester. That seems a lot more realistic of nature than the clean pictures presented before, he told a new scientist. Our third story today comes from the www.nullhypothesis.co.uk website and it's an article by Steve Robinson, The World Without Man. Apocalyptic visions of the future rarely have humans wiped out altogether and that's simply not good enough for Steve Robinson. He's been pondering what would happen if we all suddenly vanished. Do you agree? Or is Nulls Nostradamus barking up the wrong tree? Imagine the world ends tomorrow in a proverbial doomsday scenario. Nuclear winter, killer virus, whatever. What would the world be like sans homme, without man? One month AD, after doomsday. With humans gone, the infrastructure left behind, notably CCTV cameras, streetlights and other automated services, continue to tick on until power stations fail. Unregulated nuclear power plants suffering catastrophic meltdowns. Eventually, the lights on planet Earth go out for the last time. The world is adjusting to the loss of its most influential species. Nature is reclaiming its land. Desperate, some of the starving creatures have managed to break out of London Zoo and spread across the city looking for food. A sharp-eyed observer may even spot the grizzly bear in Hyde Park. Five years AD. Biological erosion begins to green the cities as nature invades. Soon the flora will bloom, mainly weeds at first, followed by overgrowth of hedges and tree shrubs until roads and pavements begin to disintegrate. Domestic dogs have long since abandoned their owners' homes. Packs of hounds roam the streets, engaging in territorial disputes as they revert to the behaviour of their wolfish ancestors. Lightning strikes ignite fires in many built-up areas. Fueled by gas leak supplies and with no emergency services, Philadelphia burns to the ground. Elsewhere, forest fires spread unchecked, cutting through the Australian outback and California, where the famous Hollywood sign is engulfed in flame. 50 years AD. 
Five decades after the events of Doomsday, Earth is already a changed place. Whilst many buildings remain, some have collapsed under natural forces. Internally, however, many buildings are virtually unchanged from the day humans vanished. Modern materials have a long lifespan. Given favourable circumstances, plastic bags might decompose sometime in the next 500 to 1,000 years, whilst heavier plastics will still be around for many millennia. The British woodland begins to reaffirm its grip on the countryside, especially on old farmland, as scrubland overtakes field and pasture. Many of the escaped animals have embedded into the wildlife of the country. Wild boar now reside in Birmingham city centre. 1000 years AD. A millennium on and the biology of our planet is shifting. In Britain, once domestic cats are thriving thanks to an upsurge in rodent populations. They're growing bigger, stronger, and could be set to evolve into the dominant terrestrial predators. Temperatures continue to rise due to the momentum of man's activities. Global warming melts the polar ice caps and leads to flooding of low-lying areas. What used to be the Netherlands have disappeared, along with large swaths of Florida. The world's cities are now ancient ruins, but some can still be identified from the air as patches of grey amongst the green. Strangely enough, most of the buildings that remain standing are churches and castles, built from slow weathering stones, as are the pyramids, though their days are numbered. Whilst the relics of man are slowly eroded on earth, his presence in space remains unaffected. Many satellites still orbit the planet, some still functioning, and remarkably after all these years. The Voyager spacecraft, launched in 1976, has reached a distance of 346 billion miles from Earth. Its systems died long ago, but it sails on through the dark. 10,000 years AD a large asteroid strikes the Earth just outside ancient Moscow, evaporating the city's remnants in an instant. The dust cloud created spans the European continent and blocks out the sun for a decade. As our buildings and tools slowly crumble into dust, the biology of the planet continues to alter rapidly. The descendants of domesticated cattle which were all but wiped out thanks to their pitifully deformed morphology, have decreased in size and learned to adapt to the now forested landscape. Large rodents traverse the subterranean landscape, tunnelling through enormous burrows. The next ice age never arrives, due entirely to the artificial global warming instigated by man. The North Pole is now entirely free of ice, its blue seas a haunting tribute to man's enduring legacy. 500,000 years AD Man-made global warming prevented the next four ice ages from developing, but now global cooling is occurring. Ice has reformed at the poles for the first time in millennia, and soon it will spread to lower latitudes, covering most of North America and Europe as far south as Italy. Many species will not survive this latest climatic change. 
the ice will cover the last traces of London, Paris, New York and Tokyo, its erosive forces crushing the few remaining relics of these once great cities. When the ice retreats, the surface of the planet will be scraped clean. Soon, the only memory of man will be left deep in the layers of soil. A footnote in the planet's history. And now it's time for Australia Facts. And this article comes from the www.standanddeliver.org website. And it's entitled, Australian Bushrangers. In the early years of the European settlement of Australia, a bushranger meant simply a person with the survival skills needed to live in the Australian bush. It inevitably evolved into a term used to refer to those men and women who in the 19th century abandoned all social rights and privileges to take up robbery under arms as a way of life, using the bush as their base. Many of these bushrangers gained considerable notoriety in their own short-term lives, some even achieving the status of folk heroes and the term has become overlaid with an aura of glamour from the songs, legends and films that have grown up around the name. Depending on one's point of view and economic or social status, they were either unfortunate victims of hard economic times with an understandable contempt for authority, or glorified highway robbers who took to the roads as an easy way to exist. The early bushrangers were generally British convicts who had escaped from assigned service in the penal colonies of New South Wales from 1788 and Van Diemen's Land, now Tasmania, from 1804. They had no respect for the rights of others and nothing to lose for their robbery and murder, depriving travellers and farms alike of money, horses, food, guns and clothing. Though greatly feared, Many escapees had little chance of surviving in the bush, and few lived long in freedom. If they didn't die of starvation, sickness or exposure, they were either killed by the police or the landowners. The glorious heyday of bushranging came after the discovery of gold in the 1850s. Many began ambushing gold shipments and raiding those wealthy squatters with properties near the gold towns. The police of the time those who hadn't already resigned the force to go after gold themselves, were frankly incompetent and corrupt and had little hope of keeping things under control. 
This second wave of bushrangers was considerably more at home in the bush than their escaped convict predecessors. They were generally native-born, bush-bred young men, often the sons of free poor settlers, who combined a contempt for authority with a spirit of reckless adventure. No one knows exactly how many there were, but at any one time there were probably several hundred active bushrangers. Some of them were motivated by social injustice and some were simply eager to acquire notoriety, though very few ever achieved the riches to enable them to escape their circumstances. Some, like mad Dan Morgan, were ruthless and vicious murderers, but others were almost admired for their reckless daring and gallant treatment of women, adopting such romanticised names as Captain Moonlight or Captain Thunderbolt. By the 1880s, the last of the bushrangers had vanished. Many of them died by violence at an early age, and those who were not shot by the police were usually hanged. The most notorious names that stand out from the crowd include Frank Gardner, Ben Hall, Fred Ward and, of course, Ned Kelly, who went on to become Australia's unofficial folk hero. The following article comes from thedailygalaxy.com Is ageing an accident of evolution? Stanford scientists say yes. Everyone has assumed we age by rust. But how do you explain animals that don't age? Some tortoises lay eggs at the age of a hundred. There are whales that live to be 200 and clams that make it past 400 years. Stuart Kim, a Stanford University professor of developmental biology and genetics at Stanford University Medical School, has challenged the prevailing theory. The discovery contradicts the prevailing theory that ageing is a build-up of tissue damage, similar to rust. The Stanford findings suggest specific genetic instructions drive the process. If they are right, science might one day find ways of switching the signals off and halting or even reversing ageing. We were really surprised, said Stuart Kim, who is the senior author of the research. Kim's lab examined the regulation of ageing in C. elegans, a millimetre-long nematode worm whose simple body and small number of genes make it a useful tool for biologists. The worms age rapidly. Their maximum lifespan is about two weeks. Comparing young worms to old worms, Kim's team discovered age-related shifts in levels of three transcription factors the molecular switches that turn genes on and off. 
These shifts trigger genetic pathways that transform young worms into social security candidates. The question of what causes ageing has spawned competing schools, with one side claiming that inborn genetic programs make organisms grow old. This theory has had trouble gaining traction because it implies that ageing evolved, that natural selection pushed older organisms down a path of deterioration. However, natural selection works by favouring genes that help organisms produce lots of offspring. After reproduction ends, genes are beyond natural selection's reach, so scientists argued that ageing couldn't be genetically programmed. The alternate competing theory holds that ageing is an inevitable consequence of accumulated wear and tear, toxins, free radical molecules, DNA damaging radiation, disease and stress ravage the body to the point it can't rebound. So far, this theory has dominated ageing research. But the Stanford team's findings told a different story. Our data just didn't fit the current model of damage accumulation, and so we had to consider the alternative model of developmental drift, Kim said. The scientists used microarrays, silicon chips that detect changes in gene expression, to hunt for genes that were turned on differently in young and old worms. They found hundreds of age-regulated genes switched on and off by a single transcription factor called ELT3, which becomes more abundant with age. Two other transcription factors that regulate ELT3 also changed with age. To see whether these signal molecules were part of a wear and tear ageing mechanism, the researchers exposed worms to stresses thought to cause ageing, such as heat, a known stressor for nematode worms, free radical oxidation, radiation and disease. But none of the stresses affected the genes that make the worms get old. So it looked as though worm ageing wasn't a storm of chemical damage. Instead, Kim said, Key regulatory pathways optimised for youth have drifted off track in older animals. Natural selection can't fix problems that arise late in the animal's lifespans. So the genetic pathways for ageing become entrenched by mistake. Kim's team refers to this slide as developmental drift. We found a normal developmental program that works in young animals, but becomes unbalanced as the worms get older, he said. It accounts for the lion's share of molecular differences between young and old worms. Kim can't say for sure whether the same process of drift happens in humans, but said scientists can begin searching for this new ageing mechanism now that it has been discovered in a model organism. And he said... Developmental drift makes a lot of sense as a reason why creatures get old. Everyone has assumed we age by rust, Kim said. But then how do you explain animals that don't age? Some tortoises lay eggs at the age of 100, he points out. There are whales that live to be 200 and clams that make it past 400. Those species use the same building blocks for their DNA, proteins and fats as humans, mice and nematode worms. The chemistry of the wear and tear process, including damage from oxygen-free radicals, 
should be the same in all cells, which makes it hard to explain why species have dramatically different lifespans. A free radical doesn't care if it's in a human cell or a worm cell, Kim said. If ageing is not a cost of unavoidable chemistry, but is instead driven by changes in regulatory genes, the ageing process may not be inevitable. It is at least theoretically possible to slow down or stop developmental drift. The take-home message is that ageing can be slowed and managed by manipulating signalling circuits within cells, said Mark Tata, a professor of biology and medicine at Brown University, who was not involved in the research. This is a new and potentially powerful circuit that has just been discovered for doing that. Kim added, It's a new way to think about how to slow the ageing process. Our feature story today comes from the damninteresting.com website and this was written by Matt Castle on July the 30th, 2007. It's entitled The Stardust Mystery. The passenger manifest for British South American Airlines flight CS59 might have made a perfect character list for a murder mystery. Aboard were two businessmen friends touring South America on the lookout for trade opportunities, a fun-loving Swiss and a self-made English executive. Also travelling were a Palestinian man who was rumoured to have a diamond stitched into his jacket and a South American agent of the Dunlop Tyre Company who had once been the tutor to Prince Michael of Romania. The oldest passenger was in her seventies, a widow of German extraction, returning to her Chilean home after an inconvenient world war had unexpectedly extended her stay abroad. And to add a whiff of espionage, a member of a select corps of British civil servants known as King's Messengers joined the flight, carrying a diplomatic bag bound for the UK embassy across the border. The date was August 2nd, 1947, and the flight was scheduled to depart from Buenos Aires, Argentina, bound for Santiago, Chile. The intrepid voyagers were to fly in the Stardust, a shiny Lancastrian aircraft derived from the legendary Avro Lancaster World War II bomber. Its aircrew were ex-Royal Air Force to a chap, and the machine was captained by an experienced and decorated wartime flyer named Reginald Cook. 
Traversing the Andes Mountains in atrocious winter weather was an undertaking that would demand all his knowledge and skills. Yet the journey should have been well within the capabilities of both man and machine. The dependable airliner could fly at speeds of 310 miles per hour and at altitudes of well over 20,000 feet, higher than most aircraft of the time and sufficient to clear the tallest peaks in the area. Reginald Cook had been recruited to the airline from the elite RAF Bomber Command Pathfinder Force and, like all BSAA pilots, had received additional navigational training. The crew maintained Morse code radio contact with the ground for the duration of the flight and, just before it was scheduled to arrive, they signalled their approach. But then a mysterious signal was received at Santiago Airfield comprising the letters S-T-E-N-D-E-C. Aware of no such Morse abbreviation, the radio man at Santiago requested a repeat of the signal, and the same cryptic message was received twice more. This inexplicable message was the last one received from flight CS-59. It answered subsequent signals with silence, and it never arrived at its destination. An extensive aerial search was mounted while the Chilean and Argentine armies combed the area on foot. No trace of stardust was found. For over 50 years, the disappearance ranked as one of the greatest unsolved mysteries of the aviation world, and a lively and inventive mythology grew up around the incident. The Lancastrian's vanishing act happened at a time of considerable political turmoil in South America. Deteriorating Anglo-Argentine relations held intriguing implications for the contents of the diplomatic bag carried by the King's messenger. Sabotage might have been a convenient way to ensure that it never arrived at its destination. Furthermore, it was hard to ignore the presence of a German-born woman on the flight at a time when American and British authorities were becoming increasingly frustrated with Argentina's tendency to welcome Nazi criminals fleeing from war-torn Europe. There were myriad ways a Palestinian connection could be worked into a decent conspiracy theory, and no doubt the Romanian royal family too, while the presence of businessmen on the flight raised the spectre of corporate skullduggery. But the provoking possibilities of the passenger list were never reinforced by any definite facts. The utter completeness of Stardust's disappearance was so baffling that eventually even alien abduction was invoked. The 1970s Spanish UFO magazine Stendek was named in misspelled reference to this theory. In the nearby Argentine countryside, the story took on aspects of an old-fashioned tall tale, with many locals believing that somewhere in them thar mountains was an aeroplane wreck from whose broken hold gold bullion spilled forth onto the rocky frozen slopes. More sober-headed individuals considered the possibility that the aircraft had simply overflown Chile entirely and ditched in the Pacific Ocean. In 1998, two climbers spotted something out of place on the lower reaches of a glacier, 15,000 feet up on Mount Tupangato, about 50 miles east of Santiago. 
A piece of machinery was lying on the ice, engraved with the letter Oles Royce. Lying around were strips of decidedly unfashionable pinstripe cloth and mangled pieces of metal. Although the site was remote and inaccessible, there had been previous visitors to the mountains in the last 50 years, but no reports of any wreckage like this. They mentioned the discovery on their return, and others quickly picked up on its significance. Tantalised by the prospect of solving the Stardust mystery, a joint military-civilian expedition of local mountaineers tried to revisit the location the following year. They were beaten back by a vicious ice storm, so it wasn't until January 2000 that the same team finally returned to the area. Not long after arriving at the base of the glacier, Sergeant Cordanzo of the Argentine Army and civilian climber Alejo Moiso dropped to their knees in prayer. They had found the evidence they were looking for. Aircraft debris, body parts, gruesomely altered by years of exposure to the cold and grinding ice. Soon they found identifiable wreckage, such as the Rolls-Royce engine and Avro propeller, and they realised that this indeed was Stardust's final resting place. The story excited great interest in Argentina, Britain and across the world. In the ensuing weeks, a much larger expedition was mounted by the Argentine army, with the aim of further documenting the discovery and recovering the human remains. Myriad journalists and a team of BBC documentary makers went in tow. Argentina's Air Force-led Air Accident Investigation Board also became involved. In a move smacking of inter-service rivalry, they visited the crash site by helicopter just before the army team arrived on foot. The resulting investigations soon began to provide important pieces of the puzzle, and for the first time a reasonable account emerged of Stardust's last hours. Heading for the seemingly impenetrable barrier of the Andes on a westbound track, Reginald Cook would have seen poor weather ahead. Confident in his machine, he would have climbed to near the aircraft's limit of 24,000 feet to get above both cloud and mountain peaks. As the unpressurised aircraft gained altitude, Stardust's single flight attendant, star girl Iris Evans, would have demonstrated the use of the cabin's oxygen tubes to the varied passengers. With no fixed ground-based navigational beacons in the area, and of course no satellite navigation, the air crew relied on compass, stopwatch and forecast wind speeds, dead reckoning, to estimate their position. Experienced airmen like ex-Pathfinder Cook were capable of impressive feats of navigation using these crude tools, even while out of sight of the ground. Presumably, after droning above the dense blanket of cloud for several hours, Cook's calculations told him that they had cleared the Andes and were nearing their destination. He started a gentle descent. The aircraft's radio operator indicated their imminent arrival at Santiago, estimated at four minutes, and tapped out the mysterious letters S-T-E-N-D-E-C. Santiago's radioman had no reason to question Stardust's position, although the meaning of the final signal perplexed him in spite of two clear repetitions. A good 50 miles from the airfield, 
Stardust crashed into the sheer upper section of Tupangato Glacier, killing the passengers and crew instantly. The impact of the collision shook the mountainside, loosening a mighty mound of snow which developed into an avalanche that swallowed the wreckage whole. Hidden from the gaze of the subsequent searches, snowfalls in the coming years buried the debris further until eventually stardust became part of the glacier, entombed in ice and moving inexorably down the mountain towards warmer air. With ponderous inevitability, the remains of the Lancastrian and its occupants slowly migrated through the ice over several decades, finally emerging from the glacier's melt zone 51 years later. Old weather charts suggest the most likely cause for Reginald Cook's colossal navigational error. They show that at the time of the flight, conditions over that part of South America were perfect for the formation of a high-speed, high-altitude wind known to modern meteorologists as a jet stream. Jet streams are relatively narrow rivers of fast-flowing air which meander across the globe in both hemispheres at high altitudes. And it seems that Cook and his crew unwittingly discovered this phenomenon during their ill-fated flight. Height and speed can vary, but the direction is fixed by the Coriolis effect, which is caused by the Earth's rotation. The jet stream over the Andes in August 1947 was blowing west to east at a speed of up to 200 miles per hour. At 24,000 feet, stardust would have just penetrated its lower reaches. Cook would have been totally unaware of this huge headwind, with the plane's ground speed slowed down to a pitiful crawl. Flight CS-59 had not even crested the Andes, let alone got near its destination at the time of its dead-reckoned arrival at Santiago. During the war, there were inklings of this meteorological phenomenon. In Europe, high-flying Allied aircraft had occasionally come across inexplicable high-velocity winds, while in the Pacific theatre the effect was better recognised, with the USAAF's early efforts to bomb Japan at altitude being foiled by bafflingly brisk west-to-east breezes. The Japanese themselves made use of those self-same airstreams for their little-known balloon bombing campaign of the American mainland. But it was to take over a decade for these observations to be drawn together into a coherent theory, capable of successfully predicting the location and characteristics of these powerful globe-spanning forces. To Captain Reginald Cook and the other occupants of Stardust, this exotic jet stream would have hardly been more feasible than spotting a UFO. It seems that the diverse backgrounds of the passengers on that fateful flight was simply a reflection of South America's turbulent post-war era and nothing more. Yet there is one final mystery to keep the conspiracy theorists entertained. Despite numerous conjectures, the meaning of the final Stendek transmission has never been satisfactorily explained. And although the aforementioned account is the most scientifically plausible explanation, nobody knows for certain what happened that cold August afternoon. Stardust's emergence from the belly of a glacier was unexpected to say the least, yet some of its secrets are likely to remain buried forever.
and at this point I'd just like to acknowledge some feedback from my listeners. My favourite podcast, Top Shape, Keep Them Coming, and that's from Damon Brunel, and I found that on podcastalley.com, and thanks for that, Damon. And the second feedback for today came from Zachary Marshall through an email. I enjoy your podcast very much. Your voice, the delivery, and the information are terrific. Keep up the good work. Your time and effort are greatly appreciated. Well, thanks, Zachary, and thanks, Damon, for taking the time to provide some feedback for the podcast. It's all greatly appreciated. And if you'd like to provide some feedback for the podcast, you can do it through iTunes or my email address, which is paulrex at paulrex.com, or through Podcast Alley or any other site where you found the feed for the podcast. And it's just a reminder that the music for this show comes from the Podsafe Music Network, which can be found at music.podshow.com. And if you like this podcast, don't forget that the show notes can be found at www.origins.info and I also do two other podcasts that you may be interested in, one called Mysteries Abound and another one called Bizarre Bizarre, that's B-I-Z-A-R-R-E-B-A-Z-A-A-R and that's all one word and both of those can be found on Podcast Alley or iTunes. The following article comes from the www.dailymail.co.uk website and it's written by Andrew Malone. How China's taking over Africa and why the West should be very worried. On June 5, 1873, in a letter to the Times, Sir Francis Galton, the cousin of Charles Darwin and a distinguished African explorer in his own right, outlined a daring if by today's standards utterly offensive, new method to tame and colonise what was then known as the Dark Continent. My proposal is to make the encouragement of Chinese settlements of Africa a part of our national policy, in the belief that the Chinese immigrants would not only maintain their position, but they would multiply and their descendants supplant the inferior Negro race, wrote Galton. I should expect that the African seaboard, now sparsely occupied by lazy, palavering savages, might in a few years be tenanted by industrious, order-loving Chinese, living either as a semi-detached dependency of China or else in perfect freedom under their own law. Despite an outcry in Parliament and heated debate in the august salons of the Royal Geographic Society, Galton insisted that the history of the world tells the tale of the continual displacement of populations, each by a worthier successor, and humanity gains thereby. A controversial figure, Galton was also the pioneer of eugenics, the theory that was used by Hitler to try to fulfil his mad dreams of a German master race. Eventually Galton's grand resettlement plans fizzled out, because there were much more exciting things going on in Africa. But that was more than a hundred years ago, 
and with legendary explorers such as Livingston, Speck and Burton still battling to find the source of the Nile, and new discoveries of exotic species of birds and animals featuring regularly on newspaper front pages, vast swaths of the continent had not even been discovered. Yet Sir Francis Galton, it now appears, was ahead of his time. His vision is coming true, if not in the way he imagined. An astonishing invasion of Africa is now underway. In the greatest movement of people the world has ever seen, China is secretly working to turn the entire continent into a new colony. Reminiscent of the West's imperial push in the 18th and 19th centuries, but on a much more dramatic, determined scale, China's rulers believe Africa can become a satellite state, solving its own problems of overpopulation and shortage of natural resources at a stroke. With little fanfare, a staggering 750,000 Chinese have settled in Africa over the past decade. More are on the way. The strategy has been carefully devised by officials in Beijing, where one expert has estimated that China will eventually need to send 300 million people to Africa to solve the problems of overpopulation and pollution. The plans appear on track. Across Africa, the red flag of China is flying. Lucrative deals are being struck to buy its commodities, oil, platinum, gold and minerals. New embassies and air routes are opening up. The continent's new Chinese elite can be seen everywhere, shopping at their own expensive boutiques, driving Mercedes and BMW limousines and sending their children to exclusive private schools. The potholed roads are cluttered with Chinese buses, taking people to markets filled with Chinese goods. More than a thousand miles of new Chinese railroads are crisscrossing the continent, carrying billions of tonnes of illegally logged timber, diamonds and gold. The trains are linked to ports dotted around the coast, waiting to carry the goods back to Beijing after unloading cargoes of cheap toys made in China. Confucius Institutes, state-funded Chinese cultural centres, have sprung up throughout Africa, as far afield as the tiny landlocked countries of Burundi and Rwanda, teaching baffled local people how to do business in Mandarin and Cantonese. Massive dams are being built, flooding nature reserves. The land is scarred with giant Chinese mines, with slave labourers paid less than one pound a day to extract ore and minerals. Pristine forests are being destroyed, with China taking up to 70% of all timber from Africa. All over this great continent, the Chinese presence is swelling into a flood. Angola has its own Chinatown, as do great African cities such as Dar es Salaam and Nairobi. Exclusive gated compounds serving only Chinese food and where no blacks are allowed are being built all over the continent. African cloths, sold in markets on the continent, are now almost always imported, bearing the legend, Made in China. From Nigeria in the north to Equatorial Guinea, Gabon and Angola in the west, across Chad and Sudan in the east, and south through Zambia, Zimbabwe and Mozambique, China has seized a vice-like grip on a continent, which officials have decided is crucial to the superpower's long-term survival. The Chinese are all over the place, said Trevor Nakub, a prominent African businessman with publishing interests around the continent. If the British were our masters yesterday, 
the Chinese have taken their place. Likened to one race deciding to adopt a new home on another planet, Beijing has launched its so-called One China in Africa policy because of the crippling pressure on its own natural resources in a country where the population has almost trebled from 500 million to 1.3 billion in 50 years. China is hungry for land, food and energy. While accounting for one-fifth of the world's population, its oil consumption has risen 35-fold in the past decade, and Africa is now providing a third of it. Imports of steel, copper and aluminium have also shot up, with Beijing devouring 80% of world supplies. Fueling its own boom at home, China is also desperate for new markets to sell goods. And Africa, with non-existent health and safety rules to protect against shoddy and dangerous goods, is the perfect destination. The result of China's demand for raw materials and its sales of products to Africa is that turnover in trade between Africa and China has risen from £5 million annually a decade ago to £6 billion today. However, there is a lethal price to pay. There is a sinister aspect to this invasion. Chinese-made warplanes roar through the African sky, bombing opponents. Chinese-made assault rifles and grenades are being used to fuel countless murderous civil wars, often over the materials the Chinese are desperate to buy. Take, for example, Zimbabwe. Recently, a giant container ship from China was due to deliver its cargo of 3 million rounds of AK-47 ammunition, 3,000 rocket-propelled grenades and 1,500 mortars to President Robert Mugabe's regime. After an international outcry, the vessel, the An Yuzhiang, was forced to return to China, despite Beijing's insistence that the arms consignment was a normal commercial deal. Indeed, the 77-tonne arms shipment would have been small beer, a fraction of China's help to Mugabe. He already has high-tech Chinese-built helicopter gunships and fighter jets to use against his people. Ever since the US and Britain imposed sanctions in 2003, Mugabe has courted the Chinese, offering mining concessions for arms and currency. While flying regularly to Beijing as a high-ranking guest, the 84-year-old dictator rants at small dots such as Britain and America. He can afford to. Mugabe is orchestrating his campaign of terror from a 25-bedroom, pagoda-style mansion built by the Chinese. Much of his estimated £1 billion fortune is believed to have been siphoned off from Chinese loans. The imposing grey building of ZANU PF, his ruling party, was paid for and built by the Chinese. Mugabe received £200 million last year alone from China, enabling him to buy loyalty from the army. In another disturbing illustration of the warm relations between China and the ageing dictator, a platoon of the People's Liberation Army has been out on the streets of Motea, a city near the border with Mozambique, which voted against the president in the recent disputed election. Almost 30 years ago, Britain pulled out of Zimbabwe, as it had done already out of the rest of Africa, in the wake of Harold Macmillan's Wind of Change speech. Today, Mugabe says, We have turned east where the sun rises and given our backs to the west where the sun sets. 
Despite Britain's commendable colonial legacy of a network of roads, railways and schools, the British are now being shunned. According to one veteran diplomat, China is easier to do business with because it doesn't care about human rights in Africa, just as it doesn't care about them in its own country. All the Chinese care about is money. Nowhere is that more true than Sudan. Branded Africa's killing fields, the massive oil-rich East African state is in the throes of the genocide and slaughter of hundreds of thousands of black, non-Arab peasants in southern Sudan. In effect, through its supplies of arms and support, China has been accused of underwriting a humanitarian scandal. The atrocities in Sudan have been described by the US as the worst human rights crisis in the world today. The government in Khartoum has helped the feared Janjaweed militia to rape, murder and burn to death more than 350,000 people. The Chinese, who now buy half of all Sudan's oil, have happily provided armoured vehicles, aircraft and millions of bullets and grenades in return for lucrative deals. Indeed, an estimated £1 billion of Chinese cash has been spent on weapons. According to Human Rights First, a leading human rights advocacy organisation, Chinese-made AK-47 assault rifles, grenade launchers and ammunition for rifles and heavy machine guns are continuing to flow into Darfur, which is dotted with giant refugee camps, each containing hundreds of thousands of people. Between 2003 and 2006, China sold Sudan $55 million worth of small arms, flouting a United Nations weapons embargo. With new warnings that the cycle of killing is intensifying, an estimated two-thirds of the non-Arab population has lost at least one member of their families in Darfur. Although two million people have been uprooted from their homes in the conflict, China has repeatedly thwarted United Nations denunciations of the Sudanese regime. While the Sudanese slaughter has attracted worldwide condemnation, prompting Hollywood filmmaker Steven Spielberg to quit as artistic director of the Beijing Olympics, few parts of Africa are now untouched by China. In Congo, more than £2 billion has been loaned to the government. In Angola, £3 billion has been paid in exchange for oil. In Nigeria, more than £5 billion has been handed over. In Equatorial Guinea, where the president publicly hung his predecessor from a cage suspended in a theatre before having him shot, Chinese firms are helping the dictator build an entirely new capital, full of gleaming skyscrapers and, of course, Chinese restaurants. After battling for years against the white colonial powers of Britain, France, Belgium and Germany, post-independence African leaders are happy to do business with China for a straightforward reason. Cash. With Western loans linked to an insistence on democratic reforms and the need for transparency in using the money, diplomatic language for rules to ensure dictators do not pocket millions, the Chinese have proved much more relaxed about what their billions are used for. Certainly little of it reaches the continent's impoverished 800 million people. Much of it goes straight into the pockets of dictators. In Africa, corruption is a multi-billion pound industry and many experts believe that China is fueling the cancer. The Chinese are contemptuous of such criticism. To them, Africa is about pragmatism, not human rights. 
Business is business, says Chinese Deputy Foreign Minister Zhu Wenzhong, adding that Beijing should not interfere in internal affairs. We try to separate politics from business. While the bounty has, not surprisingly, been welcomed by African dictators, the people of Africa are less impressed. At a market in Zimbabwe recently, where Chinese goods were on sale at nearly every stall, one woman told me she would not waste her money on Zingzong products. They go zing when they work, and then they quickly go zong and break, she said. They are a waste of money. But there's nothing else. China is the only country that will do business with us. There have also been riots in Zambia, Angola and Congo over the flood of Chinese immigrant workers. The Chinese do not use African labour where possible, saying black Africans are lazy and unskilled. In Angola, the government has agreed that 70% of tendered public works must go to Chinese firms, most of which do not employ Angolans. As well as enticing hundreds of thousands to settle in Africa, they have even shipped Chinese prisoners to produce the goods cheaply. In Kenya, for example, only 10 textile factories are still producing, compared with 200 factories five years ago, as China undercuts locals in the production of African souvenirs. Where will it all end? As far as Beijing is concerned, it will only stop when Africa no longer has any minerals or oil to be extracted from the continent. A century after Sir Francis Galton outlined his vision for Africa, the Chinese are here to stay. More will come. The people of this bewitching beautiful continent, where humankind first emerged from the Great Rift Valley, desperately need progress. The Chinese are not here for that. They are here for plunder. After centuries of pain and war, Africa deserves better. Well, after that last highly emotive article, which certainly gives you something to think about, I'm moving on to the www.livescience.com website. How Snakes Got Their Fangs by Jenna Briner. Biologists have sunk their teeth into the question of snake fang development, revealing how these poison prickers have evolved from regular teeth and allowed snakes to become such champion biters. The research suggests that both rear and front fangs in venomous snakes developed from separate teeth-forming tissue at the rear of the mouth. Unlike the situation for non-venomous snakes dentition and human teeth, this finding, detailed in the July 31 issue of the journal Nature, could explain why snakes flourished beginning some 60 million years ago, geologically soon after non-avian dinosaurs went extinct. The snake venom system is one of the most advanced bioweapon systems in the natural world, said lead researcher Freek Franck of Leiden University in the Netherlands. There is not a comparable structure as advanced, as sophisticated as, for example, a rattlesnake fang and venom gland. Snake fangs are sharp, enlarged teeth positioned along the upper jaw at the front or rear of a snake's mouth and connected to venom glands. 
Only the venomous snakes, which are considered advanced snakes, sport such fangs, while the non-venomous snakes like pythons are equipped with only the normal rows of teeth. And sometimes even a venomous snake will impart a dry bite, not delivering the potent venom. Most venomous snakes, including grass snakes, have fangs positioned in the rear of the mouth, while a few groups, including rattlesnakes, cobras and vipers, have fangs jutting down from their upper jaws in the front of the mouth. If you want to eat a very dangerous prey, like a big rat with razor-sharp rat teeth, then it would be more advantageous to have your fangs in the front of the mouth so you can bite it quickly and then let go, Vonk told Life Science instead of biting it and holding on and then chewing the venom into the tissue, because then the rat can bite back. To figure out how both types of snake fangs evolved from non-fang species, Vonk and his colleagues looked at fang development in 96 embryos from eight living snake species. Here are their names. Non-venomous snakes, water python, venomous front-fanged snakes, Indonesian pit viper, rhombic night adder, Malayan pit viper, Asian spitting cobra, Cape coral snake, rear fanged venomous snakes, rat snake, grass snake. The team's analyses showed that the front and rear fangs develop from a separate teeth forming tissue at the back of the upper jaw. For all front-fanged venomous snake species, the front fangs displaced forward during embryo development by rapid growth of the embryonic upper jaws. The rear fangs stayed put where they were formed. That's unlike the dental development scenario for humans and non-venomous snakes, such as pythons. As an embryo, all of our teeth in the upper jaw sprout from one tooth-forming tissue, while all the bottom teeth develop from another tooth-forming tissue. The uncoupled rear part of the teeth-forming tissue evolved in close association with the venom gland, thereafter forming the fang-gland complex, Vonk said. The uncoupling allowed this to happen, because the rear part of the teeth-forming tissue did not have constraints any more from the front part. The separate development of the rear part of the tissue, Vonk said, may have played a major role in the snake's ability to diverge into the 3,000 species found throughout the world today. It sheds light on one of those nagging questions in herptology. How did a diversity of fang types among snakes evolve? said David Kurzerian, a herptologist at the American Museum of Natural History in New York, who was not involved in the study. And if talking about snakes and fangs and venom is enough to make your skin crawl, think about us poor Australians. Because apparently from the world's ten most venomous snakes, Australia has the top six. Quite a few of which live where I am in Queensland. The following story comes from the www.dailygalaxy.com website. Harvard researchers create computer language that can penetrate the mind of a cell.
language is stepping into an unknown universe when your computer starts building things for you. Jeremy Gunawadina, director of the Virtual Cell Program in Harvard Medical School's Department of Systems Biology. Enter into the world of Little B, a computational language developed by a team of Harvard Medical School researchers. Through incorporating principles of engineering, we've developed a language that can describe biology in the same way a biologist would, says Gunawadina. The potential here is enormous. This opens the door to actually performing discovery science, to look at things like drug interactions right on a computer. The analogy is of writing a document with pen and paper. You need the pen, the paper, and the paper is blank. You've got nothing to work with. You have to create everything from the bottom up. You probably have that information available to you, but you have to put it down on the pen and paper. Little B, a program written in a programming language called Lisp, a language used widely in the field of artificial intelligence research, is not like our analogy. It has the ability to bypass the limitations of most programs and languages and create its own code that in turn can write its own code. Lisp isn't like typical programs. It's more like a conversation, says Gunawadina. When we put input data into little b, little b responds to it and reasons over the data. Gunawadina's impetus for the creation of little b is not for something as mediocre as looking into the human genome, but the human protein. The protein does much more of the work and is home to a massive wealth of genomic information far and away past the simple DNA. In particular, Gunawadina's lab works on kinases, otherwise known as a phosphotransferase, an enzyme that transfers phosphate groups from molecules to molecules. The researchers are now able to use little b as a scientific collaborator rather than as a simple passive tool. This language is stepping into an unknown universe when your computer starts building things for you, says Ganawadina. Your whole relationship with the computer becomes a different one. You've ceded some control to the machine. The machine is drawing inferences on your behalf and constructing things for you. At the moment, little b acts very much like those unnamed programs I mentioned at the top. They are for the early adopters who know the code back to front. But the researchers realise that in order for the program to get out of that early adopter community, it has to be more accessible. The next step is to create an interface that's easy to use, says Ganawadina. Think of web development. Lots of people are creating web pages with little or no knowledge of HTML. They use simple interfaces like Dreamweaver. Once we've developed the equivalent, scientists will be able to use our system without having to learn little b. And from the LiveScience.com history website. Earliest oil paintings discovered. 
Oil paintings have been found in caves behind the two ancient colossal Buddha statues, destroyed in 2001 by the Taliban, suggesting that Asians, not Europeans, were the first to invent oil painting. Many people worldwide were in shock when the Taliban destroyed the Buddha statues in the Afghan region of Bamiyan. Behind those statues are caves decorated with paintings from the 5th to the 9th centuries. New experiments performed at the European Synchrotron Radiation Facility, or the ESRF for short, shows that the paintings were made of oil hundreds of years before the technique emerged in Europe. This is the earliest clear example of oil paintings in the world. Although drying oils were already used by ancient Romans and Egyptians, but only as medicines and cosmetics, said researcher Yoko Taniguchi. In many European history and art textbooks, oil painting is said to have started in the 15th century in Europe. However, scientists from the National Research Institute for Cultural Properties in Tokyo, the Centre of Research and Restoration of the French Museums, the Getty Conservation Institute and the ESRF have recently identified drying oils in some samples studied from the Bamiyan Caves. Painted in the mid-7th century, the murals show scenes with Buddhas in vermilion robes sitting cross-legged amid palm leaves and mythical creatures. The scientists discovered that 12 out of the 50 caves were painted with oil painting techniques, using perhaps walnut and poppy seed drying oils. The researchers relied on a combination of synchrotron techniques, including infrared microspectroscopy, micro-X-ray fluorescence, micro-X-ray absorption spectroscopy and micro-X-ray diffraction. On one hand, the paintings are arranged as a superposition of multiple layers, which can be very thin, said Maureen Cott, a research scientist at CNRS and an ESRF scientific collaborator. The micrometric beam provided by synchrotron sources was hence essential to analyse separately each of these layers. On the other hand, these paintings are made with inorganic pigments mixed in organic binders, so we needed different techniques to get the full picture. The results showed a high diversity of pigments as well as binders and the scientists identified original ingredients and alteration compounds. Apart from oil-based paint layers, some of the layers were made of natural resins, proteins, gums and in some cases a resinous varnish-like layer. Protein-based material can indicate the use of hide glue or egg. Within the various pigments, the scientists found a high use of lead whites. These lead carbonates are often used in paintings. The paintings are probably the work of artists who travelled on the Silk Road, the ancient trade route between China across Central Asia's desert to the west. However, there are very few studies about this region. Due to political reasons, research on paintings in Central Asia is scarce. We were fortunate to get the opportunity from UNESCO as part of the conservation project for the World Heritage Site at Bamiyan to study these samples and we hope that future research may provide deeper understanding of the painting techniques along the Silk Road and the Eurasian area, Taniguchi said. The results, publicly announced today, previously were presented in a scientific conference in Japan in January.
And now from the book Panati's Extraordinary Origins of Everyday Things, a little bit more on the topic of superstition. The flip of a coin, 1st century BC, Rome. In ancient times, people believed that major life decisions should be made by the gods, and they devised ingenious forms of divination to coax gods to answer important questions with an unequivocal yes or no. Although coins, ideally suited for yes-no responses, were first minted by the Lydians in the 10th century BC, they were not initially used for decision-making. It was Julius Caesar, 900 years later, who instituted the heads-tails coin-flipping practice. Caesar's own head appeared on one side of every Roman coin, and consequently it was a head, specifically that of Caesar, that in a coin flip determined the winner of a dispute, or indicated an affirmative response from the gods. Such was the reverence for Caesar that serious litigation involving property, marriage or criminal guilt often was settled by the flip of a coin. Caesar's head landing upright meant that the emperor, in absentia, agreed with a particular decision and opposed the alternative. Numbskulls, I'm broadcasting. And to finish today's podcast, just a few short articles from the www.age.com.au oddspot website. A pizza restaurant in China has confused customers by using banana and peach signs on the gents' and ladies' toilet doors. The fruity markings were noticed by officials in Zhengzhou City in central China. All 12 customers watched by officials hesitated before going inside. Oh, I thought that would have been obvious which one's which. Oh, never mind. A former Chinese government official has been sentenced to death after a leaky toilet led police to 22.3 million yen, or 3.5 million Australian dollars, he'd collected in bribes. Police called to investigate a leak from a vacant apartment found eight soaked boxes containing the cash. Saudi Arabia's religious police have banned selling cats and dogs or exercising them in public in the capital Riyadh because men were using the animals to make passes at women. The ban follows an old edict issued by the Supreme Council of Saudi Scholars. A fizzy drink made from eels has been launched in Japan where it's said to be the best way to stay cool in hot weather. Surging eel went on sale this month during the country's eel-eating season. The yellow-coloured fizzy drink contains extracts from eel heads and bones. Authorities evacuated the airport terminal in Vladivostok in Russia's far east after a flight arriving from Seoul set off a radiation alarm. The alarm was called off when security officials pinpointed the source, a woman who had just received radiation therapy. An Indian man who took an impersonator to court to get a divorce faces legal action after his real wife found out. 
an English hotel is asking guests and staff to sign a secrecy clause to protect its recipe for sticky toffee pudding. And finally, village leaders in South Chicago's Linwood have decided to impose a $25 fine against anyone showing three inches or more of their underwear in public. Well, on that note, that brings a close to episode 44 of Origins. I hope you enjoyed today's podcast, and I hope to see you all again in episode 45. Until then, it's bye for now. Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? 
No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.